1: I had no idea. And all of a sudden, I'm going every single week and getting beaten up by 18-year-olds. And I thought, what the hell am I doing? I'm nearly 50.
2: What matters most? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Today's guest is clearly no stranger to a fight. In her role as the first woman to serve as Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, she is front and centre in the fight for fairness and equality. Well Sally McManus, welcome to Short Black. It's great to finally meet you and talk to you. Yeah, no, it's really good to be here too, even though it's weird times. It is weird times. How are you going with it all? I mean, you're front and centre in the fight for fairness and equality, but also in the most unusual sense for you in your role to be working in the inner sanctum of government to try and deliver outcomes for all of us. Did you ever expect to find yourself sitting where you are?
1: Oh, totally not. Like at the beginning of this year, I had completely different plans and expectations of what would happen for really 12 months. And they've all been thrown out the window entirely and not in my worst dreams or my wildest dreams would I have thought that we would be, I would be in the position we are now. It's not just one thing, it's the layers of it. It's the layers of the health emergency, the jobs, the job losses, the different ways it's impacting on workers. The fact now we're talking to and working with a Liberal government that's sort of not really happened for generations and generations of union officials. People talk about it being unprecedented, but it's not like I've got some, you know, elder I can call that's been in my position before and say, how did you handle it? So it's different. During the first lockdown, I was in Sydney. I got out of Melbourne as soon as I could because I live by myself in Melbourne and I'm from Sydney. And so I thought, well, I'll just go back and I'll spend this time with my friends. So, you know, I've got people to help support really. And, you know, that was okay, but um, obviously really difficult. That's when we negotiated JobKeeper and things like that. And then I got back on a plane to come back to Melbourne and now this has happened. So anyway... It's a bit depressing at the moment, but it's that thing about, okay, you've just got to go forward and every single day, you know, get up and and do your best fighting for workers.
2: I guess, if anything, the collegiate spirit of the union movement, it's all about being in the trenches and fighting for what is right and what is needed. And right now you have to draw on all those strengths to kind of do what you do.
1: It was interesting. Uh, union leaders all had a meeting last week with my executive, and so that's all the the union leaders from around the country, and we reflected on exactly this. That, like, this is a crisis, and it's it's an emergency, and and how have we responded? And for us, I guess in a way, we're sort of built for this. Like, we're built for emergencies and crisis because usually, by the time a union's dealing with a problem, it's a big problem, and so. Out of all the different institutions and movements in the country, we, I think, we're just more ready to switch to a big crisis. And so, I think that well placed, but it's even weird. You've got to say well placed. It's just, um, unfortunately, where we are, and that uh, we're used to adversity, and that's where we find ourselves.
2: Well, you're first and foremost a human being and secondly a union leader. It is still remarkable to hear you even challenged about the job at hand. I want to walk you back to the start of the pandemic and you got that phone call to be involved at the senior levels. Tell me what it was like and what was the process? How did it happen? How did it unfold and what was your initial reaction?
1: Well, it happened a bit differently. It was a meeting that was called, must have been mid-March or maybe early March, mid-March, of the government. So it was Christian Porter. He called a meeting of employers and with unions to discuss the crisis and what to do. And at that meeting, I made a decision, but I knew it would be backed up by all the other leaders that I'd say this, and this is what I said to both the government and to the employers, that trade union movement's ready just to put aside everything and to work together to save lives and to save jobs. And so if we've all got those two things as our shared challenges that we're facing even though a few weeks beforehand you know the government was still trying to pursue legislation to to shut down unions and we'd see ourselves as traditional enemies and these employers were sitting opposite usually we're in the trenches with them it's not like some far off enemy like these are big looming ones for us psychologically and in reality to say to them listen we're prepared to put that aside and i made a really big deal of that in that meeting and I just watched both um, Christian Porter and the employers sort of like look at each other. and.
2: This isn't the Sally we know.
1: <laughs> well, we hadn't actually had a meeting like this. You know, the government had called for something like this and so they didn't expect it. So I think it was more, it wasn't the Sally of their dreams or their nightmares or their fantasies rather than actually what we are. And that was the first meeting and nothing happened out of that. Then we had the second meeting and I reiterated it and said it again. And it was after that that then, Christian Porter and I started talking and it went on from there and so really it was then about I guess them understanding that we were absolutely serious and genuine and honest in what we were saying and I guess us testing them a bit about all of that too. So I think probably through this process we've all got to know each other better because you never get to know each other better than other than in a crisis. Three months of a crisis is like three years of a normal relationship isn't it I think they understand that we don't have horns and that when it comes down to it, actually unions are extremely civic-minded and extremely about the collective good and that that's been a strength that I think both employers and the government have been able to draw on.
2: To drop that fierce ideological commitment to the union stance for the greater good, was that a decision you could make on your own?
1: It actually came instinctually and from a... Deep place, and I didn't discuss it with other union leaders, but I knew that they would be supportive of this. And it was because what was facing us was so big, and it was because, you know, quite often actually unions are in a situation where a a business is struggling, and you're sort of in the same boat at that point, like with the owners of a business and, and with the workers about trying to save it. So it's not as if we don't know what that's like. And all of a sudden, that was happening on a mass scale across the country. And also the thing that really, really sharpens your mind is just facing the possibility of people dying. And so when you've got those things there, I knew that the principles of the leaders of our movement would be the same as my instincts. So we obviously had discussions about this you know, afterwards and you'd expect that some people might say, well, why the hell are we now in these discussions with this, you know, the the evil liberal government? The enemy. Yeah, there's been none of that. It's been actually union leaders saying union members and workers actually feel comforted knowing that we're working together for the common good. Now, there may come a time where that's not happening, but while we're working for the common good, that's our obligation. Like you just don't have the luxury of firing pot shots at each other or distractions or the various things that you might do under normal times when lives are at stake.
2: Often you're at senior and high level talks, but for the first time you had to drop the antagonism and there had to be a collaborative spirit. Was that difficult to shed? I mean, did it take a bit of getting used to?
1: We were focused very much on practical things. So in the beginning, it was on things like PPE or personal protective equipment. I think everyone understands what that means now, PPE. We didn't have enough of it in our country. And we knew from where infection rates were that it would be a certain time before people would end up in ICU. And we had that time, how we were going to use that we're also faced with like all the practical things about health and safety in workplaces. And then the practical things around what to do about shutting down industries and, you know, things like keepers. So I myself and unions too are actually also very practical people. We're used to dealing with the real life. So there was a, a focus on okay, we've got this task ahead of us, we've got this problem ahead of us, how are we going to work together to solve it? And so it wasn't a space where there was room for ideology, or there was just room for getting the job done.
2: How would you describe your relationship with the Prime Minister these days?
1: Uh, we don't talk that often. He's a busy person. I've had, you know, several discussions with him and face to face meeting with him, with different people. You know, he follows the Cronulla so I follow Parramatta Eels. So,
2: you know <laughs> That says it all. <laughs> but have you softened your stance towards him? Do you see him more as a person or still ideologically the enemy?
1: I haven't got to know him as a person so much, whereas obviously dealing with Christian Porter really, you know, at one stage daily. You're looking into each other's houses at sometimes when you're doing your meetings, and inevitably, like the personal creeps into what's happening. With the Prime Minister, it's more been sort of a matter of fact thing when we've had key things to deal with.
2: But look, I remember when it was announced that there was going to be this new national committee working together to help Australia deal with the pandemic. And I was at the news desk that day and I remember saying to everybody, this is unprecedented. To me, this reeks of the Accord days where it was extraordinary, the collaborative effort, and it demonstrated and signalled, I think, to all Australians the seriousness of what was before us.
1: I think it says something about our country as well. Like even though we do have these ideological differences, when it comes down to it and we're facing a crisis, people know how to pull together. And there's all these cliches that I could repeat about that, everything from bushfires through to floods. And so it's not as if that's something that's not in our character and we're not capable of. The accord actually is different because it was a Labor government and the trade union movement, they're all mates. They all knew each other. They had the same ideological basis, the same way of seeing the world. You didn't have to negotiate, you know, very different worldviews.
2: It still wasn't easy though. No,
1: it it wasn't easy. But, you know, I talked to Bill Kelty about that. So obviously he was doing my job back then. And he actually told me that there is some precedent for this, that right at the end of uh, the Fraser government that there was actually meetings between the Liberal National Party, you know, the government of that time and the ACTU. And I didn't know about this. So it was sort of a bit of our history that I didn't know about. What
2: was it over?
1: Well, it was about workers' rights and about certain changes or certain agreements that reached agreement with the Prime Minister of the day. But what happened is it all got undone by some elements of the Liberal Party within two weeks. And so I thought, well, no wonder I don't know about it. Like not only was I pretty young, but it's not written in history because probably most people don't know about it. So he's been good to talk to because obviously he says that it's no question that you've done the right thing. You've got to put the interests of workers first always, which we would. And this is the right thing to do at the time. But he said, look, this is the only thing I can tell you. This is the only time I know of
2: this happening before. Did he give you any advice at all in your approach? Oh, look,
1: Bill always just says, you know, to focus on working people and be very clear about what you're trying to achieve and why. It sounds like simple things, but I suppose also when there's a big crisis that it can be easy to get distracted by things that aren't important. And so just keeping those things front of mind always helps.
2: You say the response from the union movement has been positive. What about the broader public in general?
1: Yeah, I guess I don't have a perception of that. It's like you've got to make decisions and you've got to do what you've got to do during a crisis. And and it's not right to say you don't have decisions. You've always got a decision to make. Like you can put your head down under the doona, like keep your head down in the in the bunker for the period of time and not take the risk of engaging because this is a risk as well for us. Or you can do what your instincts say based on your principles and like I said it wasn't a need to sort of you know I didn't stay up late at night worrying about that original decision.
2: It just felt right and you went with it.
1: It felt right and then I heard back from union leaders when I talked to them obviously that uh, that was supported. It's really hard for me at the moment, like it is for everyone. Normally, you'd have a better idea around the general public. And at the moment, like all I get is Twitter and social media. And you can't always judge that as being what the general public is. But I do know that people expect their leaders to step up at this time because you're the one sitting in that chair. No one else is. So people are expecting that you will use that bit of power and capacity you've got for them and for the common good. I think that's a general feeling that people have got, not just about us, but about state leaders, federal leaders, everyone. No mucking around, no playing games, just get on with keeping us safe and saving jobs. And so I think that there's sort of a comfort that people might have, the fact that nearly all leaders are
2: doing that. One thing we have learned as a nation is how reliant we are and have been on China. What industries do you think will change as a consequence of the pandemic
1: I think there's been a real questioning around our loss of manufacturing. We used to be sort of mid-level in terms of the amount of manufacturing that we had compared to other countries and now we're like right down the bottom of all the developed countries.
2: Are there any specific areas in manufacturing that you think could blossom as a result?
1: Well there's all the obvious things like what I was telling you before about PPE. Part of the problem was is that we were getting all of that from China and at that time China was shut down and so we weren't getting that. So what had to happen was this whole refashioning of a whole lot of factories in order to make the basic stuff that we needed. Ventilators, all of that. So between now and then what we've done is put in place a local manufacturing cobbled together really in order to respond to the crisis. So I think that when it comes to all of the basic things that you'd want to be doing in a country There'll be more of a support for us being more self-reliant. And I think that's the right thing. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. and In the end, you can't always think that globalisation is going to work. And so on all those basic things that we need in order to survive and be self-sufficient, I think that there's going to be support for local manufacturing to be able to do that.
2: Throughout this whole crisis, uh, the focus on getting people working is stimulus and infrastructure projects. And arguably, belatedly, the, the TAFE and trade sector had been ignored for a long time, there's a real focus on it now. And I suspect that sector really has an opportunity to shine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. TAFE's been gutted across the country. Some state governments have, have stepped up and started to fix it. But where it was 25 years ago, compared to now, like we really should be ashamed of what's happened. It's partly because also we've had a reliance on temporary work visas. And so it's meant that some employers have thought, well, we don't have to invest in apprentices or young people in Australia, locals. Instead, other countries will train up people and we'll bring them here temporarily. Obviously, that's not being good for the country because of young people not having the same opportunities as before, but now a real questioning of where is our skills base. And so TAFE absolutely, I think is something that there's a lot of support for, for that to be rebuilt. Also because I think that young people are the ones who are bearing the brunt of the pandemic in terms of job losses in terms of now what they're facing in terms of like hex and, and where that's going up in different areas too, in terms of what are their job prospects gonna be as well. And they're super, like so many people have rated their super as well. I really think that as a country, there's something that has to be repaid to young people. The other thing is about jobs is that we can't respond to this pandemic or this, I should say, recession in the same way as other ones. Like the last one was mainly a, a blue collar male recession. It was it was men that mainly lost their jobs in industries that men dominate. This time, it's the opposite. It's women that have borne the brunt. It's not surprising You think about retail and hospitality.
2: Let alone childcare. Let alone childcare. What was the fight like at the top? Level about access to that super because so many people disagreed with the option.
1: Well, there were two things happening. There was a panic that was happening at the end of March, early April, and that was felt on many levels. And so the push by the government for the early access was in that context. It was before JobKeeper was announced. So it allowed, like, people then got JobKeeper, but also were allowed to open up, you know, the super balances so I just think it was such a mistake like there's already the ability and they could have tweaked this for people to access it if they're in extreme hardship so for example going back to visa workers they couldn't get JobKeeper couldn't get JobSeeker they could get nothing now some of them would have had super balances them accessing that which they would have accessed anyway when they leave the country made sense but just to open it up for everyone and now people thinking okay well this is some sort of you know bank account i can dip into that's not what super's about the impact of that on your average young person multiplied into the future and when you're young you're not thinking about that but at some time in the future you to look back and realize that that decision It gets multiplied and multiplied.
2: There's a compound effect, isn't there? Yeah. There was a great piece in the press just recently by Ross Gittins, a pretty well-accredited economist who wrote about the push to proceed with the high-end tax cuts. And in the context of the effect of this pandemic and how it'll play out for women, his argument was if they deferred those and just made childcare free this pandemic won't be as tough on women as it will be if they proceed down that path. I don't think many in the community understand how difficult women are going to be affected through this. And as you say, it is history-making, isn't it? That We've never been through anything quite like this. We're technically in a recession. Do you think we'll get to a depression?
1: I think it depends on what happens with the virus. So let's just say all of a sudden there was a medical breakthrough and we had a vaccine by December. I think that the answer is no. I think that if there's not a vaccine and that this continues on, I think absolutely. And going back to what you said about Ross Gittins and the effect of free child care and, and why that would be a much better thing to do, not just for individuals, not just for families, but for the whole economy, I totally agree with him. Totally agree. And you think about the, the Great Depression, you think about post-World War II, we are such a different country back then. Just before the coronavirus, women had the highest rate of workforce participation than they've ever had, which just basically means there's more women in the workforce than there's ever been. So we can't look back to the 1950s or, or before and say, listen, we should have those exact same responses. The idea of government leading us out of this because they're more than a third of the spending power of our country, a third of the economy is government spending is necessary. But then you've got to make decisions about where and how And everyone who has to pay for childcare knows how expensive it is. The knock-on effects in terms of making that free and then women's participation in the workforce in terms of then delivering
2: back to everyone in terms of growth, the economy is huge. It's a win-win, isn't it? What frustrates me with childcare is it's still seen as a women's issue.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And look, until we change a lot of bigger things, that's going to be the case. So we've got to deal with what the reality is now. And then, you know, in the future, in the better world that we're going to be in at some point that we're all going to fight for, probably we should be saying that there needs to be an extra year of paid parental leave that you can get if your partner takes it. So they've seen in countries where they do this, that then when men are staying at home and supporting their child in its early years your whole value of childcare changes because you're getting the other half of your population knowing what that's like and knowing how hard it is, how valuable it is, and that's what you've got to do in order to change mindsets.
2: Ten Speaks' latest podcast, Ten News First Person, will bring you amazing stories from all over the country, stories that matter, from journalists with passion. I'm Rialda Jacobs, and I'm proud to present these stories to you. You can find Ten News First Person on the Ten Speaks page, on Ten Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone has found working from home difficult. We've all learned a lot about ourselves, weaknesses and strengths. What have you learned about yourself?
1: Um, So it's been one in three people that have worked from home. In the first part of the pandemic, as I said, I moved to Sydney and that it was difficult because all of my friends that I was living with live in sort of apartments and then then they had the other people in the apartments living at home too with their kids because everyone's there. So I'm trying to run the ACTU and and doing what we're doing and and there's like shouting here and shouting there and all of that. But um, I think that I've always been just a self-contained person anyway. I'm actually more of an introvert and so I don't mind the isolation in lots of ways. So I don't know what I've learned. I do miss, I absolutely do miss the joy of my job is being able to go to big meetings of workers with lots of workers. And as a union movement, like we'll have big social events, so big dinners, and there are always lots of fun. I loved travelling to regional parts of the country, in particular Queensland. I, I do a lot of travelling there, I used to. So my life before this, I would be on planes at least half the week And I would live in hotel rooms at least half the week. Now, all of a sudden, all of that stopped, completely stopped. And so I miss going to those places. But then again, I think, how did I do that? How did I get on planes all the time and spend all of that time traveling? And I'm not quite sure if I want to go exactly back
2: to that. Have you already started to think about what you want to change when life gets back to normal?
1: Personally, I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want to um, I want to travel more. So I do want to go back to traveling, but not for work, <laughs> but more for pleasure. Yeah, well one of the things I love doing is bird watching, so that's something that I would normally be planning, you know, somewhere to go uh, to do that. At the moment I've stopped myself doing that because it's sort of a bit cruel because you can't predict when it's going to end so I don't want to be planning for something in even December knowing that we may not be able to go anywhere and unfortunately I've stopped my mates doing it but in Sydney saying oh we're going to plan this place we're going to go to Broken Hill and we're going to drive for two hours to this remote place and it sounds great but I don't want to hear it at the moment it's like dangling something in front of me that I can't say okay definitely that's going to happen at the October long weekend it's not probably not going to happen.
2: Yeah, we can't plan with any confidence, that's for sure. I, I'm curious about bird watching. I was introduced to bird watching by some Pommy girlfriends, and I, I wrongly presumed it was an English passion, and clearly it isn't. What do you love about bird watching?
1: Well, one of my closest friends I've known since I was a teenager, he grew up in country, New South Wales, on a farm outside of Dubbo, and so has always been very interested himself in birds and he's got this just amazing ability like um, an encyclopedia to be able to point at one and say this is this or this is this and like you'll just fleetingly see it and he'll say oh that's X and so I've known this person for a long time we've been on so many bushwalks and gone on holidays together and I've sort of for many years just humoured it and then I bought a camera.
2: Which is your other love?
1: Well it's actually my main love so it's more about the challenge of going and finding it and then being able to take a good photo. So I think I started to like bird watching through the photography. It started with the photography and now I've become like him. Like I can sort of now say that's this bird or that's that bird. And I think, oh, if I turn into one of those, I have.
2: And many people don't know, you also happen to have a black belt in Kung Fu and Taekwondo. You grew up playing cricket And yet you love rugby league. How do you fit any of that in?
1: And soccer. I love soccer. Uh, It's harder during this, obviously. But uh, before all the gyms shut down, I I was doing kickboxing because I I went from – Like I've obviously done Taekwondo and Kung Fu, then I moved to Melbourne and you're getting older and I've broken, you know, bones doing sport over time. And, you know, as you get older, like all of this gets a bit hard. It
2: sucks, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, it does suck. And then I thought, well, I want to start something right from the beginning. So I decided to start Brazilian (laughs) Jiu-Jitsu. So anyway, this was like, I don't know, probably in September last year and turned up to this class and I know nothing about this. And for those who don't know, this is one that's basically like grappling on the ground and putting people in locked positions so that they give up, basically. Anyway, I'm thinking, oh, I'll be good at this because I'm good at martial arts. I had no idea. And all of a sudden I'm going every single week and getting beaten up by 18-year-olds. And then some union delegates or union members would be there and they're going, oh no, I can't do this with you. I said, put it aside, come on. Anyway, what would happen is that I got to the position where I, I sort of knew what I had to do to get out of a particular thing. And my head would say, you've got to do this, but the body would not respond. And I thought, what the hell am I doing? I'm nearly 50. I'm trying to do this sport. Maybe I'll just do kickboxing instead. So I was doing that before the pandemic.
2: Well, you one Tough Cookie. You grew up loving cricket and soccer and you were a goalie. And one day you were playing and die for a goal. Broke your leg, didn't know it at the time, played on and worked out later that you'd actually broken your leg and took one Day off?
1: Yeah, so I love being a goalkeeper. I loved it. I like the pressure of it. I like the fact that everyone's relying on you as the last defence and you've got to be just totally focused on what you're doing. Anyway, I did break my leg, and luckily our team was good enough that I didn't have to do much for the rest of the game. But I did dismiss it and said, okay, look, it's just a sprain. It's just this. Yes, it hurts like hell, but like, you know, just be tough and like, don't worry about it. Anyway, then I did go home and I was in lots and lots of pain that night and woke up the next day and it was down the bottom of my leg, it was like really swollen up. I managed to get to work and I was a leader of my union in New South Wales at that time and people, what the hell are you doing? Go to the medical centre. So I did, got um, taken to the hospital. Within two hours, I'm walking out, I'm in a plaster cast, so
2: Yeah. You can't see the irony when you say, I quite like being the last line of defence and you've ended up doing what you're doing. But listen, you started life as a kid in Carlingford in Sydney. Tell me about your family life and your personal life now.
1: When I was growing up, Carlingford was like a new suburb at that time and full of families. So there'd be constant street cricket, constant sort of adventures that you'd go on and bits of bush that you'd find and all of that. Both my brothers and my parents still live in New South Wales and, you know, I've got nieces and nephews, which I don't get to see as often as I'd like. But uh, last night, one of my brothers was watching the Wanderers play, which is a a soccer team, a football team at Parramatta and texted me saying, you know, I wish you were here. So we will catch up and do things like that.
2: Yeah, there's been a lot of speculation about your personal life. And I read an interview with you uh, a couple of years ago where a lot of people have made Uh, assumptions about who you are and your sexuality, does that annoy you?
1: When I was younger, it did. I've always been, uh, you know, not, not fitting like a box of things. I stopped wearing dresses when I was like, I don't know, probably 18. And people would just then assume you're a lesbian. And so, you know, when I was younger, that would bother me. But now it doesn't bother me one little bit. Like I don't really care what people think. A whole lot of the queer, the gay and lesbian community in Sydney sort of assumed a bit too and I remember we did all of this work to try and get together a coalition of unions that were supporting marriage equality back in the day when it wasn't popular. So this was quite a long time ago now, probably 10 years ago. I remember doing the announcement at a pub in uh, Oxford Street and said, listen everyone, I've got something I want to disclose to you and it was all our gay and lesbian members. I said, I'm, I'm actually not a lesbian and... <laughs> Some of them laughed and some of them booed. So (laughs) how weird, you know, I just think in life you just got to be yourself and other people can put whatever labels or whatever they want on it, but um, it's just of no consideration or concern to me. Have you got someone special in your life? I don't at the moment, no. I've got lots of special people in my life, but
2: it's the way you met. understand. And you know what? My parents always taught me, you know, you never judge a book by its cover. But I've learned in this job, people see you before they hear you. And uh, the tough thing is the assumptions people make. And I love the fact that you've just brushed it off and said, it's your problem. It's not mine. You don't know me, but it doesn't matter because what's personal is your passion.
1: I think also it's harder for women. You know, we're always judged much more like what you look like and people will do those things. And I think that one of the most important things I've learned in my life is to get to a point where you actually don't care because it's liberating and that if you love yourself and you know that your mates care about you, your family cares about you, really that's all that matters and that then it's such a strong foundation and then you're not worried about terrible things that people will say about you on Twitter or or on social media. It's irrelevant. I just encourage everyone to do what's necessary to get to that position as quickly as you can. It's not easy, and it's not easy for anyone. But in the end, it is all that matters.
2: One thing I have learned is people always say terrible things about you. It just depends on how much you take it to heart or choose to ignore it. Now, listen, in your job and in life, you said you don't wear dresses anymore. And oh look, I wear slacks, and you know, slacks—that's very <laughs> reflective of my age. Um, but. Uh, it makes me laugh every time I say it because I think of my mother. We've got a nice pair of slacks on. Anyway, um, you like to wear pants and I get that. But when you go to a black tie function, are you ever tempted to throw a frock on? I, I would feel like I was
1: cross-dressing. I know that sounds weird, but it's like I don't know. Like, no, no, I'm not. It's And it's not like it's a statement. It's not like it's any of that. It's about comfort and also like, I also, I totally respect, absolutely, totally respect everyone who is into dresses or fashion and all of that. But it's just not something I think about. Like if I could just wear a uniform every day, I'd be really happy about that. I wouldn't have to make decisions about it. So it's easy just to wear sort of the black suit and a shirt in my job every day, because if you're doing media and things like that, that's what you're doing. And then I've always got, oh, well, then what do I wear at night if I'm going out somewhere to uh, one of those functions I was telling you about? So how do you change it up? Oh, look, I've just got literally, you know, three night things, which is just sort of basically colour, a little bit maybe sparkly, not really sparkly actually, it's so plain. I do quite like shoes so here I am so I not like fashion but I've got this sort of um, range of what I think are pretty cool shoes that, that I wear.
2: We've all got our little indulgences haven't we? Yeah we do. Tell me what floats your boat music wise, who are you listening to at the moment?
1: I'm not listening to any music at the moment, I did listen to this very touching song by Paul Kelly about my winter coat yesterday actually it came up on the on the radio and it just felt it felt like perfect pandemic melbourne song it was a very haunting sad song about putting on your winter coat and so yeah you know for anyone who wants to have the feeling of what it's like at the moment if you're not in melbourne i'd recommend it I quite like though, and it's. I think people just get stuck in their their time when they were right into music, and for me, it was the late '80s and early '90s. So you've got some punk, and you've got some grunge. And if I was to listen to a playlist, it'd probably be still Silverchair and some punk music. I also do like the energy of that and the resistance of it. A lot of that music especially the punk music came out of social movements at that time too, which were sort of decrying, you know, a lot of the things that the union movement does now too about inequality and things like that. So I do like the energy of that too.
2: I guess I see a lot of parallels when you talk about music that you inevitably are drawn to the music when, you know, it exploded in your world and you were f- fascinated with it. And it's the same with dance. I'm currently having some dance classes with my husband just because it's really hard to break out of the only dance moves you're really good at were the ones you thought you were good at at the time, somewhere between, you know, 16 and 30.
1: Especially if it's rap dancing, hey, that could be embarrassing <laughs> later on. Was that you? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think back to my very first concert that I went to was Wham, so that sort of says my age.
2: Mine was Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah, I was about 15 and I went with my brothers to Festival Hall. He gave five encores. It was almost history-making at the time. And then then I followed it up with my second concert was Sherbet. Sherbet. <laughs> so what... <laughs> Sherbet. So, you know, horses is always a favourite. Not that he sang it at the time, but Daryl Braithwaite is always a favourite because it just reminds me of my youth. One thing you also love is you're a bit of a gamer. That must be really comforting during these darker times because you, if you like to be quite isolated, it's something you can play for hours and hours on your own and be completely lost.
1: It's a fantasy world. I like the ones that are big sort of open world games and ones, of course, that are a bit about strategy. I like the idea of going and sort of testing your skills as a samurai or as a sniper in a fantasy world, and that's effectively what you're doing. I used to read lots of books, like I'd have multiple books going at a time, but I don't know. It's just sort of, because I've got to read so much in in what I'm doing every day, it's sort of almost like I don't want to do that at the moment. So but that was escapism in a way. I really liked historical novels and sometimes some really good science fiction, but mainly historical novels where you could sort of imagine like another world.
2: You sound a lot like me every day. It's four newspapers at the very least. And the last thing I often want to do is read a book until I actually have a holiday. Oh,
1: yeah, that's true. Like if you're having a holiday and you're laying by a beach or somewhere, it's a bit different, isn't it? The other thing is it's changed things really, hasn't it? It's been streaming Netflix and Stan and things like that and getting into, you know, series that you can then also, it's another form of escapism.
2: What are you watching at the moment?
1: Uh, look, I've gone through sort of all of the key ones and now like SBS um, Direct has some great ones. So Does Boot is really good. Oh my goodness, my
2: husband's obsessed with it. We've just finished watching it. That's extraordinary, isn't it's it? great isn't it? It's a great script. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The other challenge is to continue to find st- streaming series that can keep you entertained. And, and it's all about switching off, finding that gear change so that you can cope with the everyday. You know what, Sally McManus, it's been an absolute delight getting to know you that little bit more away from the union leader, the first ever female union leader in this country. I want to applaud you for the strength of leadership you've shown and I just admire the way that you have dug in for the betterment of all of us and put politics aside. I just want to say thank you. What a joy it's been to chat to you today and all the best with the next few months. I hope you find some joy. Hey, thank you so much too. This has been a great chat. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.